Would you join me in a word of prayer as we uh, start digging into the word this morning? Father, you know that uh, I come here in my weakness and humility, um, bringing a word that uh, Steve planned to give, um, and he has a fantastic and special way of approaching your word uh, and sharing it with those around us. And um, Lord, I, I pray that uh, his words, and, and particularly Lord, your words, would come shining through in this message that... Uh, um, Lord, you inter- interact with us uh, with your Holy Spirit um, and allow us to grow and mature just a little bit this morning through this. Uh, we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right. So we have been in a series on Mark, if you're just joining us today. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the notes that Steve gave me. He gave me his, his entire outline. Um, and there's some interesting things that I realized about how Steve operates. Um, all those Steveisms, those Wisconsinese things, that he, he actually writes them in his notes, which is really interesting. So <laughs> if some of those slip out this morning, it may not be me. Um, you're going to get kind of a blend of, of what Steve would have brought um, and a little bit of me. So it's kind of a Shannon and Steve. It's kind of a shave thing this morning. So we'll see where that goes. I'm surprised. People are laughing, and it's, it's, it's actually, we left the, left the clock the way that it was um, so that I could remember what time it would actually be had it not been uh, the move forward thing. So it's only 8.24, and you guys are already into this. This is fantastic. Um, we've been in a series on Mark, and um, last week we, we uh, finished off um, with uh, the story of Jesus eating with tax collectors and the Pharisees being really bent out of shape about that. And then his, his claims about being the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and we're going to pick up right there where we left off last time uh, in Mark 3, uh, 1 through 2. And it says, And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had, had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. In uh, most political or social movements, there's a watershed moment. It's that tipping point where things get to an untenable place where it has to push one way or the other. Um, Before that point, uh, two parties could exist in kind of an uneasy truce, but then something that happens that sends them in opposite directions. Again, that tipping point for that uneasy balance. And this is that moment. We've watched Jesus perform a few miracles um, up to this point and crowds start to gather and recognize who he is and, and there's this growing tension with the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law um, as they struggle with some of the things that he's saying. And this is that moment where it goes one way or the other. Up to this point, uh, the teachers of the law had, had tolerated what they probably would have called Jesus shenanigans, right? He, he did some interesting stuff, and maybe that first miracle he performed was, oh, that's, that's, that's cool, that's interesting, could this be a prophet? And then uh, the more he talked, the, 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 the more he had people gather to him, um, the more challenged they became by it. And this moment is that line in the sand. And from their perspective, they've drawn this line and, and questioned him, and he's on the wrong side. Of course, they are on the right side in their view. 
Now, it's kind of interesting because what's happening here, what, if you take this, this at face value, what Jesus did is awesome. It's really amazing, really cool. Um, healing people and forgiving sins, that's fantastic. You'd think that they'd be excited about it. You'd think that they'd jump in on that. Um, instead, they're focused more on waiting for Jesus to cross the line so that they can, they can catch him in it. And if you imagine yourself in this situation, you can kind of feel the tension of the moment. They know there's a guy here that, man, he could heal. He's done this before. Um, it, it, he might do something crazy and amazing, but um, we're going to watch for this because it's not good. They watched him closely. In another translation, it says they were waiting to see um, whether he would heal them on the Sabbath. And, and I'm sure you catch some of the irony in this, too. Um, they came to the synagogue to worship God. They were supposed to be there to worship, to praise, to recognize God's truth. But instead, the reason that they're there is to spy on Jesus. They are there to see. They don't even know it. They're there to see the Son of God. Um, but their motives are completely wrong, completely off. And that just goes to show that doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is nothing new. They showed up at the synagogue that day not to worship as they should, but to catch Jesus in a, a conundrum here. So even on the surface, they showed up for him. It, it was for the wrong reasons. And, and in this situation, you can almost hear him thinking, go ahead, we dare you. We got you this time. And did you notice that there's this unspoken assumption that everybody makes in this situation that the Pharisees fall into? Um, just the situation itself, they're trying to catch him healing somebody on the Sabbath so that they can prove that he's um, outside the law. And yet, they take for granted the fact that he actually has the power to heal right then and there. They were convinced that Jesus could do miracles. And yet, you find yourself in this situation. It's this crazy, weird dynamic going on with the people there. And their question was, would he, not could he? They knew. So in their head, in their minds, the trap was set. They weren't coming to church to come to church and worship God. They were coming to church to catch Jesus in a trap. In a sense, they were worshiping. It was just their own power and sense of self-righteousness they were reveling in. And we can look at that and think, these guys are absolutely ridiculous. They're awful. They come to church to catch Jesus in a trap to, to focus on themselves, to maintain their own power. We would never do anything like that, would we? Moving on with the story. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And Jesus, instead of shrinking from it, he boldly sets the game in motion. 
And, and if, it, as we read through the Gospels, we find time and time again, Jesus can't be trapped. You can't, you can't box him in. He, he, he's not able to be pinned down. He shirks off these traps. Um, and he usually does so in a remarkable and miraculous way. Um, it reminds me of um, Lisa and I. Not because one of us might be Jesus, but um, my wife <laughs> my wife is a very good counselor. Um, she w- went to school to be a social worker, and uh, early on in our marriage, um, I had lots of issues that could use counseling, and she would try her methods out on me. And yet, there's this weird thing. I'm completely immune to counseling. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's good or bad. But early on in our marriage, we discovered it doesn't work. The methods that she would use, it just, it just falls right off for me. Now, there's a lot of negative reasons for that. Jesus doesn't have those. But no matter what the situation, no matter what the methods or the entanglements they set for Christ, um, he can't be pinned down. So he does oddly what they're hoping for, and he calls this man up front, front and center. And he asks the question to everybody, because he knows what's in their hearts and minds. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or kill? Now, as I'm reading that, I think, well, gee, that's a little bit extreme. To save a life or kill, he's not saving this man's life by fixing his shriveled hand. Um, That's a weird justification. But if you dig a little further, that's not exactly what's going on here. The issue at hand was what was not only what was the purpose of the Sabbath, but also what was the intent of the Sabbath. The The original intent with God's example of resting was to set a deliberate break from focusing on their own gain, their own work, instead of reflecting on God's goodness, provision, and devote time to him. He set up the Sabbath for a particular purpose. It was for them to set aside all the work and things, and work tended to be self-focused, right? At least for me, I get involved in something, and I put blinders on, and I don't think about anything else than what's right in front of me, what I have to accomplish. And usually that accomplishment is for my own gain. I get to walk home with a paycheck at the end, or uh, kudos from somebody, or acclaim, or power, or whatever it might be. And God set up a system by his own example that said, no, 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 here's a day that you're going to have to break from that method of doing things and we're going to make this so fine that you have no choice but to focus on who I am in this, in this process, in this Sabbath. The Pharisees, the scribes, and Jesus all knew that they, what they weren't supposed to do on the, sa- the Sabbath. There's a long list of rules about what's acceptable, and it all comes down to what work is. Um, there's some crazy stuff about um, not even being able to pick the bones out of a fish because that, that changes its makeup so that it's edible. Um, you can't apply heat to food. There's prescriptions about how far you can, how many steps you can take, um, even to the point of how many um, flights of stairs you can go up, those kinds of things. And, and for them, they knew the law. They knew this long list of rules that they weren't supposed to do. And the Pharisees, a lot like I do, focused on the letter of law, the law versus the heart. 
So what, what was at issue here was what was allowable to do on the Sabbath for them. And particularly, was it admissible to do good on the Sabbath? Now, Levitical law allowed for healing on the Sabbath only in the event that a life was in danger. And so it's, it's with that, that situation that Jesus says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save a life or to kill? And again, where I focus on, well, the man with the shriveled hand isn't in a life-threatening situation. Um, Jesus isn't pointing at the man. He's pointing back at the Pharisees. He points directly back at them. Is it lawful for you to want to kill me for doing good on the Sabbath? That's a direct confrontation and challenge. And you can feel that tension there as he hasn't acted yet, but the man's in front of him and he's framed that situation. So how did the Pharisees respond? But they kept silent. For them, there was no way to win because they were in the wrong. But they couldn't admit and change the way they were going with their, the hearts, their, their hearts the way they were. But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him and how they might destroy him. Um, Jesus is upset. He looked around at them with anger. And for most people, I would say that's probably wrong. That's probably not good. Jesus is one of the, the, I think the only one I could believe is capable of true righteous anger. These are supposed to be the people who know him. These are God's chosen ones. God's chosen people, his people. They're supposed to be the people who are for him. And so he's angry and he's grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he knows why he's there. He knows his purpose. He knows he's coming to demonstrate submission to them. He came knowing what was going to happen at the end, that he was going to die on the cross for their sins. He came not to show show that God wasn't just this sitting up in the sky guy that dictates everything and demands everything from us. He showed submission and that if I'm asking submission from you, I'm going to submit to you first. And Jesus knows the end of the story and is grieved because of the way that they're taking what he's bringing. And this isn't anything new. God's been wrestling with humanity from the beginning um, and with Israel as a nation from the beginning. Hardness of heart was the main reason they spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. You guys know this story. Um, After they'd been rescued from Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Everybody there had witnessed God's power, his miraculous um, freeing of them from captivity. And because he was up there so long, they forgot about him and they made a golden calf 
to praise and worship instead, saying this is the one who freed them from Egypt. And God is grieved, just as Jesus is grieved here. And God tells them to leave Sinai and go up to the promised land, but that he wouldn't go up with them because of the hardness of hearts, their inability to submit to him. And they were so infuriating to God that if he were to go with them, he would consume them along the way. He would have wiped them out, swallowed them up. I think God could probably come up with some pretty creative methods to take us out. Let's take a look at that scripture real quick. Exodus 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. He tells them they're a stiff-necked people. Um, stiff-necked isn't a compliment. Um, you go where your head is pointing, unless um, you're trying to do deliberate misdirection, um, you know, in sports or something like that. You go where your head's pointed. Uh, and that's why they put uh, a ring in the nose of a bull, to lead it by its head, right? When you're being led, you go where you're pointed. Having a stiff neck means you're not able to be turned aside. You're inflexible. You're headstrong. The stripping of the ornaments um, where God has asked them to take off their ornaments, set them aside. It's an act of humility that he's asking of them. It's setting aside their pretension. They don't have any image or false front to maintain anymore. We're going to look the best we can. We're going to celebrate our own glory and our goodness he asked them to set it aside. And it says in this passage that this is a disastrous word, and they knew it. Um, most of you are parents, and uh, when you've got a child that has disobeyed, it's probably bad for me to say this, but I kind of enjoy that moment where you send them to their room, and you're like, you go, you know, they've done something wrong. You go, you sit in your room and you think about um, what I'm going to do when I come in. Oh, man. <laughs> that is fantastic. In the end, you hardly even have to do anything because the fear of that is, is what really takes care of it. These guys knew, man, if, if God comes, it actually shows up here, we're toast. And he's even told us, he'll consume us. And he's weighing what to do with them. Moses uses this illustration to remind them not to forget how badly they've sinned against the Lord. Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been a rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Moses was concerned about them, especially on the eve of his departure. Deuteronomy 31. For I know how rebellious and 
and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? He knew that he was an intercessor for them before the Lord, and after he was gone, what was going to happen? Let's take a look at how this trait of being stiff-necked, hard-hearted, um, trails through the whole of history uh, of Israel. There's some examples from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, Isaiah was before the exile of Israel. Jeremiah prophesied during the destruction and deportation of Israel, and Ezekiel prophesied from exile in Babylon. Here in Isaiah, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God told them many times they weren't supposed to go back to Egypt. They weren't supposed to go back that way again. He brought them out of Egypt. They weren't supposed to return. They were trusting an agency of man, Egypt, Pharaoh, the things that they had, had to offer, not the fatherhood of God. Jeremiah says this, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? And again, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not stay in their heart, say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God. And then Ezekiel. And he said to me, son of man, I sent you to be the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are so imprudent or impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they're a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So we can look at, at Israel, and I look at so much of the hardships that they went through. And much like when I look at the Pharisees, I think, those idiots, man, they could not get that right. Didn't they know that all they had to do was follow God? And I don't even recognize the own areas in my own life where I still do what I want to do. So easy to, to think that we don't have that problem. First Corinthians 10 tells us, that the, tells us that these things were recorded or took place as examples for us that we wouldn't commit evil the way they did. In the New Testament, we get warned about hardness of heart in the same way they did in the Old Testament. The Pharisees dealt with the exact same heart condition. God addresses us knowing that we aren't any different. He says in Hebrews, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, the, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and they said they always, or, and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. 
as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, when God speaks, don't plug your ears. Don't pretend you didn't hear him. There is a huge danger of going astray in our heart. When we create distance, our hearts harden up. What, what is it that hardens us? For me in my life, most of you know my story. Um, I grew up in a Christian home where I knew God. I knew who God was. I'd seen the evidences of him. Um, I, I didn't question his existence. Um, I, I'd seen the miraculous things he could do with those around me. And even in my own life, I'd seen it. Um, but I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I I didn't want to be responsible to God. I didn't want to be beholden to him. I didn't want to, I wanted to live life the way I wanted to. Do the things that that I thought were important. And so as a result, I wouldn't go to church at all. I, I was comfortable in my own belief in my own house because I could frame things the way I wanted to see them. Lisa came from a, uh, a church background that was vibrant and full of relationship. And because I didn't want to be responsible to what God was asking of me by being involved in a body, I wouldn't go to church at all. And I went so far as to tell her, you can't go to church either. Those ways that we harden our hearts are infectious. They affect other people. It's not just you. I knew all the things about God. My problem was the lack of my belief in the need to submit. I wanted things my way instead of God's way. And when I'm telling kids about what sin is, trying to define sin, uh, kids will often say, well, it's being bad. Well, sure, but what does that mean? my definition of sin is exactly what I was doing, is doing things my way instead of God's way. So what is it that that hardens us? The answer? It's the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews addresses this and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's the deception of our hearts. Um, We can be willing dupes to get what we want. And, And in my own life, that didn't change until I recognized that that was sin. That it didn't much matter that I believed in God. The Pharisees did that. They believed Jesus was totally capable of the miracle that he performed in front of them. There was no doubt. And yet their hearts were so far away from him. When we sin, we fossilize. We harden up. We shut out God and we undermine our own ability to change. Um, 
I know it's a little bit early, but uh, I'm going to call the worship team back up as I wrap up right here. So I've mentioned those areas of the heart and the sin that I carried. Um, and this is where a pastor would usually uh, pound on the guilt of, our bo- of us as a body, right? Um, we need to do things different. Um, and I'll do that just a little bit. Hardness of heart is not unlike a stone. Um, if I went in for a uh, ultrasound and that's what they saw, there'd be some problems. Um, unwillingness to change, unwillingness to bend, to bow the knee, um, that's not a healthy way to live with that as a heart. But what if we flip that? Instead of pouring on guilt about how we have all hardened our hearts, what if we flip that with a question this morning? What's the opposite of a hard heart? What would that look like? Mark 10 says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. In so many of the stories about children, um, as a uh, former children's pastor, I, I often think directly of kids and think, boy, these guys are innocent and perfect, and they aren't. (laughs) But one thing kids do have is a soft heart. And for them, it looks a little bit different than that stone there. Um, The soft heart is malleable. It's changeable. Maybe a little salty but it can be molded and shaped um, by a designer's hand. It can be changed from the shape that we desire by hands that are far more skilled than ours. A soft heart able to say, yes, Lord, rather than, no, you don't. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, so often in stories like this, uh, we see ourselves as, ourselves as outside observers. Or, or maybe we put ourselves in the position of a uh, protagonist or on the right side or on the good side. Um, Lord, so many times in my life, I can identify far more with the Pharisees in this situation where I've told you, no, I won't. You can't do that. You can't make me do that. Lord, I thank you for your patience. Lord, and sometimes I thank you for your anger and the way that you've disciplined me in that. The way that you've changed my hard heart. Lord, as we move forward from here, I pray you would work to give us soft hearts. That those areas that we 
interact with your Holy Spirit, that we cooperate with him, that you would help us to take those baby steps to have soft hearts, to allow you to mold us and change us, as uncomfortable as that can be. Lord, I pray your patience on us, with us, your mercy upon us, Lord, and that we would never accuse you of wrongdoing when you choose and try to heal us. Lord, thanks for being a good God. Thanks for leading us so well. Help us to submit to you. We thank you for your word this morning, and we ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.